Good morning, everyone. Great. You're all very welcome at Calvary Waterford. I see a lot of new faces, so if this is your first time, uh, we're really glad to have you guys here. And guys, as the kids go, let's lift them up in prayer and open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for all you're doing in our church, and our lives. Jesus, we thank you for this book we get the study of Galatians and learning more and more of the beautiful gospel of Christ. We thank you for our kids, Lord. We thank you, God, that the message is as available to them as it is for us. And so, Lord, as um, their teachers just teach them today and spend time with them, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in their hearts, that you would show them the beauty of Jesus, that they would fall on their knees, Lord, and receive you as Savior. And God, I pray for us in here who believe in you, God, that you would speak to us, that you would um, shape us more into your image, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit and the reading of your word. We pray, God, we would walk out from this place changed. God, give us soft hearts ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 this morning. <coughs> and chapter 2 is really a continuation of uh, Paul's defense that we've been seeing the last few weeks in Galatians 1. Paul is making a defense against the accusation of these false teachers who were claiming that he had a gospel that wasn't really from God, but was a kind of a, a distorted hand-me-down from the apostles. And against this false teaching, the apostle Paul says, no, actually, your gospel, your works-based, man-centered, man-focused gospel, that is from ye, that is taught by men, that has its origins in men. But what I received was from God. I received a revelation from Jesus Christ, and this is the gospel I proclaim to you. And so Paul spent the last half of chapter 1 um, giving us um, an account of his, the events of his life post his conversion to show that he did not go to Jerusalem, and he did not receive the gospel from the apostles. You recall last week we mentioned as Paul uh, told us of his conversion story about how he was saved by Jesus. He says he did not go to Jerusalem immediately um, to consult with the apostles. Rather, he went into Arabia, so like modern Syria location, for a time. That he returned to Damascus, and it, he stayed there for about three years. And so it was not until three years later that he actually makes the trip down to Jerusalem. And even then, he says, I didn't spend a whole lot of time there. Acts 9 records this visit for us, but he says, I spent 15 days there. I saw the Apostle Peter as a tourist. I saw James, the brother of Jesus. And that was it. Um, Paul had to flee the city. He got sent back home to Tarsus because he was going to be killed for preaching the faith. And so Paul told us when he left Jerusalem, he was unknown to the churches of Judea. The only thing they knew about him was the work that he was doing. And they were saying that he who once persecuted the faith is now preaching the very message he tried to destroy, and God got so much glory for that. As we go into chapters 2 and look at verses 1 and 2, Paul now gives us uh, the account of when he actually did decide to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel um, to the apostles to let them know their teaching. <coughs> it says in verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So we're going from the assumption that this book was written before um, Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council uh, to deal with the issue of the Gentiles. And if that's the case, and this is Paul's visit to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. 
One of the really cool things when you actually study the epistles of the New Testament is you can see where they fit into the book of Acts, and we can get a better idea of what's been going on. So what's going on in Acts chapter 11? In Acts 11, we are told about how the church of Antioch is established. So following the death of Stephen and the persecution of the church by Paul, as a, as a matter of fact, um, these Christians, these Jewish Christians, they fled north to the city of Antioch and they established a church there, first with the Jews, but very soon this church becomes this very big, very busy, multi-ethnic, multicultural a diverse church of Jews and, and Gentiles. And Acts 11 records how um, the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas down to the church originally to check it out, but then a group of men and women from uh, Jerusalem who had the gift of prophecy, they come up to Antioch. And it tells us one man, a man named Agabus, he makes this prophecy by the Holy Spirit. He says there is a famine coming upon the whole world, which he said, Luke says happens during the time of Claudius. Now, the church in Antioch, they received this as a message from the Holy Spirit, and they decided to do a fundraiser. And they, they want to raise a bunch of money and send it down to the church in Jerusalem. And the reason for this, you might know, is the church in Jerusalem was actually quite poor. Um, it was the mother church. It started at Pentecost. And if you think of the story of Acts, you have these thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And 3,000 people give their life to the Lord that day, including many, many people who were not from Jerusalem. They had traveled from distant lands to, you know, to go to the temple for this feast. And after becoming saved by Jesus, they, they, they stayed there. And so we see this experiment happening with the early church where they're selling their possessions, they're sharing with one another, they're meeting each other's needs. But what happens is as the need grew, the resources started to dry up and this church was becoming poorer. And if a famine was coming upon a whole land, the church in Jerusalem would suffer the most. And so you know, Antioch, being a, a wealthy city in the Roman Empire, these lads decide we're going to raise up a bunch of money, and they do, and they send the Apostle Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. Now, Acts 11 doesn't tell us it, but we see here in Galatians, Paul also brings a man named Titus. And Paul now, um, about 17 years into his fate as a Christian, he decides now is the time to bring my message, to bring my gospel to the apostles and to tell them my teaching and to see what they taught. And so he says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation, and again, this is most likely the revelation of Agabus about the coming famine. I came up through a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So why did Paul do this after 17 years? It wasn't for their, their validation. He didn't need the approval of the apostles in Jerusalem. We know, in fact, again, he says in chapter 1, he had a revelation from Jesus. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus set him apart and called him to preach to the Gentiles. But the last thing Paul needed in his ministry was division, especially with the mother church, with the church in Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and to have them to be on board with his gospel not only stops the vision happening in the church, but also just validates and gives further strength to Paul's message and to Paul's gospel. Again, Paul had already seen the fruit of his gospel. He had seen the souls saved and the church established. 
But this is important. So he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and he takes a man named Titus with him. If you don't know who um, Barnabas is, Barnabas was originally a member of the Jerusalem church. He was a very well-respected man. His name was Joseph, but the apostles liked him so much, they called him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. So he's the kind of guy you want um, to hang around with, the guy who encourages you with your walk with the Lord. And so it was good for Paul to bring, have Barnabas with him. But he also says he brings a man named Titus, and that's actually important. Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Greek man who was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul and became a Christian. And Paul, Paul loved Titus. You might recognize him from his name in the Bible. He had a, a letter written to him. And Paul tells us that he was his son in the faith, that he was a man who was trustworthy, who brought him great comfort and brought him great joy. So Titus was important uh, to Paul. But in this situation, he was also a man who could have gotten him in a lot of trouble. When I mean, think about it, Paul is bringing an uncircumcised Greek into the very heart of Judaism, into Jerusalem. And we know the church in Jerusalem was already having pressure from their Jewish brothers and sisters for their faith in Jesus. And here's Paul bringing a Greek uncircumcised man who says, you know, I know Yahweh, I know your God, into the center of Judaism. Like it's, it's, a, it's a time bomb waiting waiting to happen. And so what does Paul do? He goes to Jerusalem. He, him, he and Barnabas, they hand over the money to the church, and he says he goes to the leaders in Jerusalem. He does it privately. He doesn't do it publicly. He's not trying to embarrass them or have this kind of public fight, but he says he goes to them in secret, in private, but, you know, behind closed doors, and he presents his gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles. And no doubt, Titus was part of that presentation. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about you know, the gospel in a, in a theoretical way, but to see a life transformed by the power of Jesus in his resurrection is proof. And so Titus was a man, here he is, who was born again, whose life is completely transformed through faith in Jesus. And so this was Paul's presentation, the word and the fruits, and this was the real testing of the gospel. Would the, the apostles in Jerusalem demand Titus, this Greek believer in Jesus, to be circumcised? And their answer, again, is important. Because either the gospel of, of simple faith in what Jesus has done is for everybody, or it's for absolutely nobody. And if obedience to the law, if being good enough, becoming a Jew was required to save you, then Jesus' work is not enough. Paul says in Galatians 2, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was true to the Lord, and Christ died for no purpose. If we could save ourselves, if it was possible for you to work your way to God, then Jesus Christ died for absolutely no reason. It's either you stand before God in your righteousness, or you stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus. You can't blend the two. We're not meant to blend the two. It's one or the other. <clears throat> so we asked, well, what was the outcome of this presentation to the, the apostles in Jerusalem? Well, verse 3, it says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Titus was off the hook. I'm sure he was really happy to hear that news, because it was not very pleasant for a grown man to be circumcised in the first century. 
But Paul says this whole issue actually came up because of, of false believers, false brothers, fake Christians who maybe looked the part and talked the part, but were really not, did not know Jesus. He says, they came into the meeting and it says in verse 4, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So what happens is while Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are meeting with Peter, with, with John, with James, with all the apostles who remain in Jerusalem, and this private meeting, these false brothers, they, they, they sneak into the, into the meeting. And Paul says they didn't come there for good intentions. They came for bad intentions. They didn't want to hear about the grace of God. They didn't give a, a moment's thought about what God was doing in the, with the Gentiles, the hundreds, the thousands of people who were whose lives were being transformed by the grace of Jesus. No, he says they came in to spy out our freedom and to bring us into slavery. Now, we mentioned two Sundays ago, when, when false teaching comes into your life and my life, uh, we must reject both the teaching, and Paul says, and John says as well, the teacher. There is, there is no room to allow the influence of false teaching in our life. And we see here why in, the, in this meeting in Jerusalem. These lads sneak in, they are given a voice, they are not kicked out, and the influence only continues to grow until we get this whole um, conflict in Acts chapter 15 of do Jews, Gentiles need to become Jews. If we give room for like false teaching in our lives, it's become like a weed, it becomes like this root that will grow as some of us know too well about weeds and the problem there, and it will be an absolute pain and a trouble for you. Like you look at the, the you know, people who have been influenced by false teaching, and it can stay with you for years. Like my, my, my standing before God as righteous is because of Jesus. I struggled with that for years because I was brought up teaching. I wasn't good enough and had to do enough stuff. People who are told that Jesus isn't God and the Trinity isn't real and are indoctrinated into cults, it can take years for that damage to be undone. And so we cannot allow false teaching into our lives. Paul says it will bring us into slavery. These Judaizers wanted to bring us into slavery. And the idea of slavery was very important to a Jewish person because they knew what it meant to be enslaved. The Jews were enslaved to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. So they knew what it meant to be under the dominion of someone else against your will. They knew what it was like to not experience freedom. And Paul takes this idea of freedom and slavery, and he says that we, mankind, Jew and Gentiles, we are under slavery as well. We are, by ourselves, slaves to sin and slaves to the law. Paul says the law is our master as well as our teacher. It has a dominion over us. We are under it. But the message of the gospel is that Christ has come to free us from our slavery and our bondage to sin and to the law. Jesus comes, he dies in our place, he rises again to deliver us from all of that, from the bondage, from a place of sin, and he brings us into a place of freedom. He makes us children of God. We are adopted into the family and the household of the Lord. Amen, right? We are free. Paul says in Ephesians, Galatians, rather, chapter 4, later on in this very same book, in Galatians 4, chapter, uh, verse 3, he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, true God. And that is the offer on the table for every man, woman, and child. Freedom from sin, freedom from our slavery to the law, a place in God's family. But Paul says these false brothers, they want to bring us back into bondage. By bringing them back to the law, they were becoming slaves to it once again. And I really love what, how Paul describes this here. He doesn't say they wanted to destroy, you know, to spy out your freedom and your, you know, make you a slave. He said they wanted to spy out our freedom and make us slaves. Paul, he's identifying with the Galatians here. He was a Jew. He could have easily said, lads, this, this one, this is your fight. Who am I to step into your, your situation? I'm circumcised. Deal with it yourself. I don't have to worry about it. You do. But he doesn't, does he? No. Paul knew that the freedoms that the Galatians had experienced, the freedom that we experience as Christians, he had experienced the very same thing. And if it was taken from Titus, and if it was taken from us, it would be taken from him as well. See, Paul knew what it meant to be free. Um, there's something, I, I, I want to say the word hidden, because hidden sounds like it's kind of Gnostic. But Paul says he didn't go to Jerusalem for 14 years, right? What did every Jewish man and woman have to do every year? The law said you had to go to Jerusalem to take part in the feasts. So Paul, for 14 years, did not take part in these feasts because he knew he was freed from the law. And so if he was free, and if we are free, it was his fight too. He says in verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul stands his ground. The truth was more important to him than a false peace, than a fake unity. The purity of the gospel was so important to Paul. He knew if he compromised on this and had Titus circumcised, then his preaching and their freedom and our freedom would all be in vain. It would count for absolutely nothing. And so this was the conflict that Paul had in this meeting with the false brothers. We were asking, what about the apostles? Are you just like standing here on the sideline watching this happening? Well, Paul says in verse 6, actually, to the contrary, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added absolutely nothing to Paul. What does that mean? It means they agreed with his gospel 100%. That salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the law. They agreed that there is nothing that the Jews could do to earn righteousness. There is nothing that we can do to have a right standing before God. All that was required is that we say, Jesus, I trust in you, and we keep that trust going as we follow him. And so Paul's gospel was tested, and it was found complete. It was not lacking. And we can say praise God for that, because that means we, the freedom we have is not in vain. That the boldness that we can go before the Lord in prayer, in worship, in spending time with him, 
We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to our temple. We don't have to kill an animal and sacrifice and be in the state of purity. We can come before the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus alone. It's amazing. It is so amazing. And as we move into verses 7 and 10, we see the response of the apostles of John, of James, of Peter. But before we do, let's just take a moment. Let's reflect on the three, the three parties we see in these verses. <laughs> so we have these false brothers who are trying to add to the gospel and to say you have to do something else to really be saved before you can become a Christian. We have the apostles who stand with Paul and add absolutely nothing to the gospel. And we have Paul himself, who not only preaches it, but he defends those who believe it against false teaching. And so our question is, where do we fall into this? As a church, yes, you know, but as individual members of the body of Christ, who do we want to be like? How are we perceived? And what have we been? You see, we never want to become like the false brothers in this text. You know, if you're a Christian, you're saved by grace and you will be saved until the end. But we never want to be guilty of adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We don't want to demand that people must do something other than simply believe to be righteous in God's eyes, to have a right relationship with him. But here's the thing, it can really easily happen. And we have plenty of examples of church history of this thing happening. We want to avoid it, so sometimes we need to recognize, well, work, how can we slide into this? And, and two ways I often see um, is, one, it's misapplying and misinterpreting the scriptures outside of its actual context and outside of our context. And number two, it is when we take our convictions from the Lord and we try and put them on other people. So the false brothers, they were doing the first thing, weren't they? They were clinging to the law. But the law, we know, was for a time and a place. And when Jesus came, when he died for us, and when he rose again, Paul says he set us free. And so the law did not have the same place in their lives anymore. Now, it was good. I love reading the law of God. I love reading the Old Testament. There are so many principles you know, we can see from there. We can see the heart of God, you know, how he values his people, how he cares for the oppressed, how he hates those who oppress others, how he wants us to be a community that loves. It's all there in the law of God. But these false teachers, they were trying to take the feasts and the laws and the dietary laws and the circumcision, and they were trying to make it binding on all people in all circumstances for all time. They had misinterpreted the Old Testament. You know, it no longer applied the same way now that Christ had come. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen with the new. Particularly the new, right? Because like, we're the church, and the New Testament speaks of the church of God. And so it's very easy to read things in the, in, in the New Testament and apply it to our lives. We should. But we need to always recognize the New Testament was written to people who were very different from you and me. They had different cultural norms. They had different standards. They had different um, ways and we have our own ones, some good, some, some not so good. And there's a danger of either trying to, it's called eisegesis, reading your situation into the scripture and saying the scripture is about this, or looking at the first century context and just trying to force it into our situation when it doesn't quite, quite blend. And what happens when we do this is we can miss the original meaning 
and, and say, this is a, a blind rule you must follow out of context as opposed to what the scripture teaches. <clears throat> you see this in groups, and I'm not going to name names of churches. I don't have any intention of doing that. But it does happen, uh, particularly in the area of appearance. So people would take like, the, the letters of Peter and say, ladies, don't braid your hairs, don't wear makeup, don't wear jewelry. The Bible says you can't do that. Or they'll take the passages of Corinthians chapter 11 and say, men, you can't have long hair, and ladies, you can't have short hair, even though short hair in the first century meant you were a prostitute, and in the 21st century in Ireland, it doesn't actually mean that. And they'll take things like head coverings. Ladies, you must wear a hat when you pray. Men, you must not wear a hat when you pray, even though, like, when, if I look at a man with a hat, I don't go, well, that's a symbol of his authority, of his being under the authority of someone. A head covering meant you were under the authority of your wife. Maybe a wedding ring is the best analogy we have in 21st century Ireland, but a hat certainly doesn't symbolize being under someone's authority in the West today. And so what happens is we, we take these, these things, we strip them of their context and their meaning, and we try to say, if you don't look like this, or do this, or baptize in this way, or take communion in this way, or worship in this way, or speak this way, then you're just not really as, you're, you're, not, you're not really part of us. You don't belong. You're not part of the church. And there are churches who do this. But the other thing, I think maybe it's less extreme, but we can be more guilty of it as individuals, is conviction. So the Apostle Paul speaks of conviction in Romans chapter 14. And his point in that section of scripture is this, that we all have personal convictions from the Lord in different ways at different seasons. For the Romans, it was the issue of, of, of meat. The Jewish Christians weren't eating meat sacrificed to idols because they were brought up Jews, and for them it was a conscience matter. The Gentiles who became Christians did eat that meat, and it had no bearing on their conscience whatsoever. And Paul's point of the whole section is that we must not despise each other for holding to our personal convictions to the Lord. Rather, we must recognize we are all trying to serve the Lord, trying to be obedient, and trying to follow the convictions he gives us personally. If we don't do this, we can fall into a trap of we lay our convictions on the, on the consciences of others and say, if you don't meet my standard for my convictions, your faith is somehow less than mine. And it can easily happen. One such way, <coughs> excuse me, is the example of alcohol. So, who's saying the, the Bible doesn't forbid the drinking of alcohol. If you haven't taught that, you haven't taught a lie. But you have the freedom as a Christian to drink or not drink. Some of us in this room have convictions. Um, I don't think I've ever shared this from the pulpit. Um, around 2021 of February, the Lord started doing something in me where I was starting to feel a bit weird about drink. Um, I drank as a Christian, I didn't get drunk, and I had the absolute freedom to do that. But I was going through a season where I was just feeling maybe I shouldn't be drinking anymore, and it coincided with an awakening to a, a desire to, to, to um, pursue the things of the Holy Spirit. And it was in July 2021, over a Zoom prayer meeting, um, the scriptures came to me like, like, a, like, a, like a bolt of lightning uh, from Ephesians. Do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that moment, for me, I knew the Holy Spirit was telling me, for a season, I don't know how long the season is, I'm not to drink alcohol. And you know what? That's Okay. I can walk in that freedom. I don't actually miss drink anymore. And, and praise God for that. Like, it, it's not a thing for me. But if, if I was to take that conviction and say, if you drink a touch of alcohol, your fate is less than mine. If I make my convictions your standards, I am missing the mark and I am adding to 
the gospel, making my standard the standard for all, saying you must be righteous in my eyes for what you do rather than being righteous in the eyes of the Father because of what Jesus has done. And there's two big differences, right? And that must be resisted in our own hearts and in, in the church as a whole. We need to have courage like Paul to stand up for our brothers and sisters who are walking in freedom. We need to, you know, like Paul could have let the whole circumcision thing slide. He could have said, it's not my problem. I am circumcised. Whatever, you guys, you deal with it. But he didn't because if we place a burden on any believer like that, it is on every believer. And that cannot happen. We must hold to the truth like the apostles and add absolutely nothing to the gospel. Instead, we encourage one another to walk in the freedom that God has given us, to walk in our convictions, to be faithful to him. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. So again, the apostles, those who say, Paul says they were of influence, they added nothing to the gospel. Instead, in verses 7 to 9, we see they are actually in full agreement, not only with Paul's message, but with Paul's calling. Look what it says in verses 7 to 9. He says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul says they offered him the right hand of fellowship. And this meant acceptance, not only of the of Paul and Barnabas, but of their message and of their, their calling. He says they, they recognized that Paul was giving a specific ministry from the Lord. God had graced him in a particular way. And his calling was different from that of the apostle Peter. It says Paul was called to go to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. And Peter was called to go to the, um, the, the, the circumcised, to the Jews. Um, they had a different ministry. And they recognized God was calling Paul in this way, just as he had called Peter in a different way, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. The apostles, they see this calling in his life, and they don't resent Paul. They don't get annoyed because he... He didn't have their calling. You know, they rejoiced at seeing what God was doing in Paul and, and through Paul. Again, that's another lesson for us today, I think. We are not the same, and that is okay. You are not me. I am not you. We are called by God to do different things than him. We're not meant to be the same. We're never called to uniformity. If you go into a church and everyone has the same haircut, the same clothing, um, the same Bible translation, all do the exact same thing, you might be in a cult. It's uniformity. It's not unity. Um, it's not okay. And we see this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that we are all not the same. We will not all serve the purposes of God in the same way. Rather, the Holy Spirit will give you and me different gifts and equip us in different ways for his purposes. <coughs> and I think it's important because we had the time this morning, um, to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to see that we are a diverse group of people, that God will call you in a way that is different from me, and that it's okay, we are not to get frustrated, we are to recognize our differences and to build each other up. And that's important, because, you know, like, 
if you're serving as a pastor, sometimes you wish the entire church was full of pastors. If you're serving on the worship team or the kids' ministry team or the cleaning team, sometimes you wish everyone was just like you so the job would get done. And sometimes it's easy to get bitter that people aren't doing what you do or doing what you think they should do. But the reality is God will call you in the way he is calling you. And we are not to resent that. We are to support you in that. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one body we were all baptized, in one spirit, sorry, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, because I'm not like that person, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of a body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? That goes, you know, that's a, that's a conviction on me now that I can't get resentful if you don't have my giftings. You know, and if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of, of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, if we were all a really big foot, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body, he says. If we skip down to the end of that section, he says, God has appointed in the church apostles, second prophets, third teachers, the miracles and gift of healings, um, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no. But earnestly desire to hire gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Again, I am not you. You are not me. We are not each other, and that is good. So again, we can never look around at each other or look at different churches even in the city and say that because they're not serving the way we serve, they're not speaking the way we speak, they're not reaching the people that we want to reach. I can't get angry at a church in Dungarvan, for instance, for not reaching the people of Waterford City. If we're in the city center, we can't get angry at people who are in like, the countryside not going into the city every weekend. You know, we are meant to be, to be different. We cannot say it is not good enough or we need to do it our way. You know, we are called to go into the world, make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them to obey Jesus, but we have a lot of freedom of where we're meant to go and how we do it. And what I would say to you is that if the Lord has given you a particular ministry, or if he's put a certain group of people as a burden on your heart, and it doesn't look like the rest of us are doing that, do not shrink back in that calling. Pursue it. Pursue what God is calling you to do. If it's not against the scripture, my job and our job isn't to condemn you or to discourage you. Our job is to equip you, to build you up in the Lord's calling. Now, if you don't know what your calling is, and sometimes it can take a while, sometimes we don't know, maybe, maybe we think God has put a particular place or person or group of people on our heart, maybe it's a certain ministry he wants us to do, we're not really sure, um, ask the Lord, seek him, you know, um, trust in him, he will make your ways straight, as the Proverbs say. Put it before him and he will show you the way. 
But as we pursue his calling, as we pursue direction, we have the freedom to do this because we must, because and when we keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is the main thing is the gospel and the fruit that it brings. And we see one such example of this in our final verse, in verse 10. Paul says, the only thing the apostles said to Paul was they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul was asked that he remembers the poor. And in this case, they're probably talking about the poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea who were suffering from poverty and would suffer because of the famine. Paul and Barnabas were not to forget that even though they had a particular calling from God to leave the land of Israel and go to the Gentile world, they were still called to be part of the body of Christ. Again, we might be led in different ways from the Lord, but that does not disqualify our calling and our duty to each other. We are called to support each other. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may take the same care for one another. He says if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. We are the body of Christ, and we're individually members of it. So we're part of that body. Paul was part of that body, and Paul knew it. He says that what the apostles asked him to do to remember the poor, that's the very thing he wanted to do. And that's what he continued to do. Throughout his ministry, Paul made an effort to support his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were suffering because he knew he was called into one body through one gospel. So as we, as we conclude this morning, Paul, he has presented his gospel in Jerusalem and has stood the test. And our response to that is we get to rejoice because we know that the gospel is for every man, every woman, every child, regardless of nationality or creed or language or background. It is for all of us. And all we must do for eternal life is to believe in Jesus and to receive what he has done for us. And if you're not a believer, you know, because someone might not be a believer in here, the gospel is for you. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to get right with the Lord. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. We can become children of God today. We can receive eternal life today. We can be set apart for God's glory today if we come to Jesus and call upon his name. We can be saved. And so we will pray for you as we close. And if you want to receive the Lord Jesus, come speak to me. I want to help you in that. But church, for us who are believing in the gospel, for us who have received what Jesus has done for us, we can rejoice, again, not just that we have it all because we have Jesus, but we know this message is for the entire world, it's for a world that is suffering. It can be very hard to go out there sometimes and see a person who is going through the hardest of situations and say, God loves you and God died for you. They'll say, how could God love me if I'm suffering? But we have the answer. We have the gospel. And if we have the gospel, we know that no matter what kind of person we come across, whether their life seems perfectly together or whether their life is absolutely falling apart, they can be transformed by the simple message of the gospel. There is no one too far gone. God saved me. God saved you. He can save absolutely anybody. And we can reach the world through this message. And we have the honor of being the messengers. Amen?
we're going to close, as we do so, we'll have a time of worship. Uh, you can respond to the Lord in your own way during that time, whether it's you standing up, hands up, praying, getting on your knees and just waiting upon him. Um, there is the elements of communion in the back. If you're a Christian, we take the bread and we take the cup to honor the Lord. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, don't take it. But if you're not a Christian, become a Christian. Then you can take it. And I'd love to see you take it. So, you know, do so in remembrance of Jesus. And we'll have, I'll be available for prayer in the back as well. So let's, let's bow our heads. And let's, let's call upon the Lord and respond to him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the simple gospel, Jesus. Thank you that I am saved. Every person in here who believes in your name, Jesus, is saved regardless of what we have done, regardless of what we will ever do, because it is about, Lord, what you have done. Praise you, Jesus, for the simple gospel. God, may we never add to it. May we never try to take away from it. Never, may we never, Lord, hold people to a standard that we are not held to ourselves, God. Because the standard of righteousness is you, Jesus, and nothing else. God, help us instead to encourage each other to walk in the freedom, Jesus, that you have won for us. And to pursue you, God, and to pursue what you have for us and what you want to do in us and through us, God, for your glory. Holy Spirit, I pray as we worship now, that you would speak to us, Lord. If there's areas in our lives that we need to change, God, would you do that today? If there's a, a particular people that you are calling us to, Lord, would you confirm it, God? God, where, where you are leading, would you just make it so clear to us, Lord God? Lord, we love you, Jesus. Thank you that we can come boldly before your throne now and worship. And we praise you, we honor you, we give you all the glory. And we pray it in your name. Amen.